Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And frankly, what's going on at the global front is all of our business, which is why we're glad to have Harlan Allman back on the show. He's been on the show before. He's the author of several books, including one that he describes as his most, most important, which is The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, how massive attacks of disruption become the looming existential danger to a divided nation and the world at large. That's a pretty good summation. It's a little long, Harlan, but it's a pretty good summation of exactly what our situation is like today. Uh, welcome to the uh, program. Glad to have you back. Kevin, it's good to be back. And I just say that I finished writing the last draft of a book about a year ago. And what surprised me most is how quickly the conditions have deteriorated to the point that my mad of massive attacks disruption, of disruption no longer is MAD, but it's MADD for massive attacks of disruption and destruction. And by that, yeah. I mean not only COVID, but what's happening in Ukraine. Look at the crises around the world in Korea, over Taiwan, in the Mediterranean. Uh, you have Algeria uh, sizing up against Morocco uh, in a dangerous way. You've got Turkey saying it's going to go to war against Greece. So the times have really <laughs> escalated in terms of danger, both by acts of man and acts of nature. And it's something that we are totally, or not totally, but largely unprepared for. And that's why I think this book is so important. Yeah, and by the way, uh, you, you're known for, according to the expression of shock and awe, uh, which is something we heard a lot, particularly in the Gulf War, uh, the original. That's when I think we first began to hear that. And, uh, and as well as some very other, uh, very important uh, other strategic concepts and ideas. And uh, we're glad to have you back on the program. So we are in not only in a nation divided, and we certainly are here in the United States, a nation divided, but a world divided. You know, I, I had a lot of hope, uh, and there certainly has been some improvement, uh, oddly, in a sad way, uh, with the situation in Ukraine, uh, a lot of unity like we hadn't seen in, in quite a while. But, you know, generally speaking, this is a really divided planet. You would think in the 21st century, with all the optimism about, you know, uh, we're getting smarter, getting better, uh, we're not seeing a whole lot of evidence of that. <laughs> well, well, you're absolutely right, and unfortunately... One of the fundamental problems we've had in this country historically, certainly since World War II, is the failure to have sufficient knowledge and understanding of events and adversaries. We think, as President Biden has said, that this is a battle between democracy and autocracy. But the fact of the matter is that's not true. This is a battle between democracies and democracies to see whether or not democracies can work. Take a look at what's happened in Italy, what's happening in Britain, what's happening here. And we also think that even though the Russians on an unprovoked basis, as we see it, invaded Ukraine, the fact of the matter is a majority of people around the world are supporting Russia, not us. I mean, you take, if you take China and India, you take a lot of Africa, countries like that, and you take the vote in the United Nations that condemned Russia, a majority of the world's population sided with Russia. So mm -hmm. we need to think a lot more about our situation and that while we think something is necessarily correct, we see it from our perspective, and that might not be the right perspective. I'll give you two other examples. We think Russia is losing in Ukraine, that their army is being badly beaten, and somehow the Ukrainians, much, much smaller, are going to win. That may well be correct, but what does winning mean? 
And in fact, the Russians are in it for the long term. Putin knows that winter is coming. And so his vicious attacks against the energy infrastructure of Ukraine to deprive them of energy and natural gas means with a cold winter, Ukrainian people are going to suffer at a time that Putin is probably going to be able to reconstitute some of his forces, even though they've not performed very well. On top of that, we believe that if Putin were to use a nuclear weapon, he would probably only use one or two, possibly as a demonstration, or to take out the target. I think if he decides to use a nuclear weapon, it's not going to be one or two, but 10 or 20 or 30. And using my Cold War ran bomb damage computer to determine nuclear effects by dropping, say, 20, 20 kiloton nuclear weapons, 20 kiloton or 20,000 tons of TNT equivalent, he can, in essence, destroy Ukraine west of the Dnieper River that divides the country in half, north to south, as a functioning country. So I'm not suggesting Putin is going to use nuclear weapons. What I am suggesting is that too often our view of the world is far too narrow and not sufficiently well-informed. And this is an mm-hmm. important point I make in my book, The Fifth Horseman. Yeah, well, you have, you have, excuse me again, you've unboxed a lot with that. Uh, you know, when you say things, though, first of all, I really appreciate this, because we tend to get into a very uh, ethnocentric worldview, and, and that's not an American problem, that's wherever you live problem. And so we see things through the glasses of where we live. So it's, hooray, Ukraine, we live here. I get that. So I love the fact that you bring a lot of nuance to this conversation. You know, the, the idea of objective media, it, it, it's ridiculous because of the fact that, uh, you know, if you start trashing the Ukraine or if you say some of the things you just said about Russia in the media, you know, you, that, that, news, that media is going to be out of, out of existence unless it's some extremist publication appealing to a niche, a niche group. And uh, to me, that's disappointing. Because we need a broad, broadened view. We need a, uh, something beyond this uh, xenophobic, ethnocentric worldview, which is what you brought to the conversation. I appreciate that. At the same time, when I hear about the world representation and where they stand on this, let's face it, a lot of the countries you mentioned, like China, the average Chinese person isn't even allowed to fairly or freely weigh in on this conversation. You know, they wouldn't well, want to. I make another point, Kevin. Um, Sixty years ago this month, the Cuban Missile Crisis took place. And I think since the majority of Americans were not alive then, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the head of the Soviet Union, put in short-range nuclear missiles in Cuba. Uh, Kennedy found out and established a quarantine, and ultimately, after 13 days, Khrushchev withdrew them. them. But what people don't know and didn't know then, the cause of the missile crisis was not Khrushchev, but Kennedy. Before, long before Kennedy took office in January of 1961, Khrushchev had begun reducing spending on the Soviet military. He cut a million forces from the reserves to put scarce rubles into the civilian sector. Along comes Kennedy, who believes that there's a huge missile gap. In fact, there was a missile gap, but it was the Russians who had virtually no strategic weapons. We were far ahead of them and begins a huge military buildup and invades Cuba at the Bay of Pigs in April. 1961, which was a catastrophe. So here's Khrushchev saying, you know, I thought the Americans would be sensible. Uh, They're building up and I'm building down. What do I do? And so he thought that putting missiles in Cuba was the way out. Well, fortunately, the situation was resolved peacefully. And while we claim a great victory, 
The Russians also claimed a victory because the Americans agreed not to ever invade Cuba and to remove its Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Well, today mm-hmm. has similarities, but the fact of the matter is we got that wrong then, and we may be getting it wrong today by exaggerating, in this case, Russian weaknesses and exaggerating Ukraine's strength, even though Ukraine has been brilliantly courageous and operated you know, at, at extraordinary levels of bravery uh, with civilian as well as military, and they need to be commended. But because they're performing so well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win. And I think we have to take a very, very hard look because what we need is a long-term strategy to end the war in Ukraine on favorable terms, and we don't have one yet. Our strategy is to let the Ukrainian army bleed the Russians into concessions, and frankly, that's not going to happen. Or at least I don't think Yeah, well, this is the advantage of being an autocrat, which is what Putin is, right? He's, you know, yeah, he's got to play a little bit of the games uh, that you have to play in a pluralistic society because they do have elections, you know, and so they play these little, he plays these little democratic-looking games. But in the end, he can strong-arm in a way that uh, uh, leaders in uh, true democracies cannot do. And well, yeah, uh, that's why he is able to, he, he has the luxury of a long game that, uh, that the uh, Ukrainians don't have. Well, you've got to be careful with that. Remember, how long did we stay in Vietnam? You know, if you believe that Vietnam really started in 1961, we were there for almost 15 years. We were in, we were in uh, Afghanistan for 20 years. And so I think oh, I get that. get engaged in wars, irrespective of whether it's democracies or autocracies, generally yeah. speaking, it's likely the war is going to persist. And I think that's the situation that's occurring right now. And I think that Putin really believes over the long term Despite the fact he's getting pummeled on the ground, uh, I think he believes that Russia's size and strength ultimately will overpower Ukraine with winter coming, with the alliance divided. I mean, supposing Putin says to Turkey, let's make a deal of some sort if you vote against Sweden and Finland joining the alliance, we'll do something big. And I would have thought the Russians should be doing that. But imagine if... Finland and Sweden are not accepted into the NATO alliance, what sort of a geopolitical strategic setback that would be for us. And Putin is capable mm-hmm. of doing that. And I don't think anybody's yeah. really aware of that. No, I, well, uh, they should be. It's kind of fairly common knowledge that you have to have uni- unanimous support to join NATO. All the members have to unanimously support that. And your point is true. I mean, it's amazing how long we stayed in Vietnam. Uh, especially with the fact that there was a draft, a draft involved. You know, I understand uh, the wars in uh, the Middle East uh, in the last couple of days, few decades, because at least it was an all-volunteer army, and so we kind of like, well, that's okay. But the draft is is just extraordinary to me that it lasted 15 years, especially when you consider the fact that uh, we were only one of of a few different powers, uh, France being the one just before the United States that had dealt with the quagmire of Vietnam. And apparently we didn't learn anything any more than the French did. Well, actually, the French did learn, right? They let us take over. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and we have to realize that uh, whether Russia learned, remember, Russia was in Afghanistan for a very long time, too. A whole long time. And who knows what they've learned. But you see, the Cuban Missile Crisis was not existential, fortunately, and for us. And certainly Vietnam really had no strategic consequences. 
Ukraine, however, I think is existential for Putin. You know, imagine we were fighting. Imagine if we were fighting the Russians in Mexico or in Canada. Um, you know, this is on their border, and so we have to right. understand that there's a big difference in how the Russians see things. And I'm not saying we need to appease uh, or accept that, but we need. First of all, we need a long-term strategy, which we don't have, and we have to understand where other parties are coming from so that we can put in place means to deal with them and not ignore them. And I think we're ignoring how Russia feels about Ukraine and the fact that it's probably in for the long term. And so we need to do several things. One, we need a long-term strategy. Two, I think the president needs to expand uh, his council of advisors during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy formed what was called the Executive Committee, or XCOM, of experts outside the government. I think he needs to do that. We also had a good line of communication through the Soviet ambassador here. We don't have a really good line of communications. And finally, we ought to be thinking about how do we end the war with a strategy in which, in all likelihood, concessions are going to have to be made by all sides. That's the only mm-hmm. way it's going to be settled because I don't see how Ukraine can win an all-out victory. I don't think that's possible. And I don't see how Russia can obtain an all-out victory. Uh, so is that going to be a 30 years war or a 100 years war? And it's not only wrecking havoc on Ukrainians, but the consequences globally in terms of tunnel escalation, but also what about food shortages? And so oh, yeah. the implications here are far greater, and I don't think that uh, this is going to be something that's going to be settled in the short term. And quite frankly, as I said earlier, Kevin, our strategy of thinking we can bleed the Russians into concessions is just like we did in Vietnam, that we can bomb the North Vietnamese uh, into uh, into defeat, and that didn't right. happen. No, it certainly did not. Uh, and and uh, you know, it seems to me you get the I get the impression that Putin believes that his certainly his legacy is on the line uh, by whether or not he wins this war. Some go so far to say that he was he's maybe in a very vulnerable position as a leader, and maybe even was even before all this began, and uh, you know has to walk away with something that looks like a victory uh, in order to be able to walk away. And so there's a lot of moving parts in this whole deal. I think there's a lot of a comic book, almost comic book attitude about the war. Um, You know, and that exists in almost every war, you know, until a loved one of yours gets killed. Um, And I think that is really dangerous. I do think we need more thought. Uh, in terms of, you know, what endgame looks like. I don't hear anything about an endgame. And I know a lot of that is because it's beyond, uh, you know, uh, the ability to predict accurately. But there should be a lot of talk. Frankly, you brought up some of it on how do you get to that point uh, by making some changes in strategy and even where you get strategy from. So final thoughts as we wrap it up. Kevin, in in the title of your program about a business, don't forget we've got November elections, which will be contentious. But Jamie Dimon believes that the stock markets are probably going to contract by another 20%. And I think with inflation not under control, with the likelihood that the Fed is going to raise interest rates, I think we could enter really difficult, hard economic times. And if that happens, how is that going to affect our support of Ukraine? We're sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine in weapons. But if Ukraine needs $5 billion a month to be able to support itself and winter last three or four or five months, Where's that 30 or 40 or $50 billion going to come from? The EU, the mm-hmm. European Union, being all that supportive. And so a lot of Americans are going to say, look, we're in hard times now, especially 
if yeah. everybody's 401k start to shrink, um, there can be some interesting and very painful turns in this particular situation. That's why I think a strategy now for the long term is absolutely vital. And if we have one, I think right. that's terrific. It's not obvious to me, to me that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, of course, part of that whole scenario you just laid out is the fact that the Republicans could win the House back. Uh, and, in fact, it looks more likely that they will. And how big that win is could affect the Ukraine situation as well because, really, the GOP has become really a neo-isolationist party, in my opinion. And so well, how does that play out? Here's another wrinkle. It is not inconceivable that one Trump and two Bidens could be tried, I mean, under a court of law. Trump for what he did in Mar-a-Lago with those classified documents, but Hunter Biden uh, for income tax and other things, and likely or possible a Republican House could Joe Biden, even though there's no chance of his being convicted. Now imagine if that right. went on. He had three Joe trials, and that's not inconsistent. It's not a Hollywood movie anymore. Trump has broken the law, period. His lawyers agree to that. The question, how seriously is this a felony or is this something that's relatively a misdemeanor? And it looks like Hunter Biden has broken the law. And as I said, it's not inconceivable that the House could try to impeach Joe Biden, even if they only had a one or two seat majority. Harlem Allman has been our guest. Thanks so much for being with us. Do look up his book, Interesting Conversation. I, I did forget to mention he's a senior advisor to the Atlantic Council. Good to have you back on, Harlan. I, I hope you take care. Kevin and I have pl- 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 plugged the books of more The Fifth Horseman and The New Mad. It's essential reading. There you go. I'm, I'm Kevin Price. This is The Price of Business. Stay tuned for more. <laughs>